What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. 
I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yasin. I've got a very special guest with me this evening. My guest this evening is Harry Watlin. Good evening, Harry. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Really appreciate you having me on. Uh, well, thank you. I um, appreciate you being with me, man. Um, just, just before we get cracking, Harry, just maybe give the listeners a, um, a bit of an insight around who you are, what you do, and then maybe we can kind of spin off from that. Yeah, so, um, so I'm currently the, the manager of Hartford Athletic, who are uh, a USL championship side. And the USL championship is the, the second division in, in America, so it's underneath the MLS. And um, yeah, prior to that, worked in three academies in the UK, so started coaching at quite a young age of, of 16. Went to Chelsea at the age of 19, um, spent five seasons there. Went to Mill Football Club in the academy there, spent four seasons and then spent three great seasons at West Ham. A lot of, a lot of coaching experience in such a short space of time. Um, Harry, I must say you look good. I'm presuming you're still quite young um, with a lot of experience. So tell me, um, in those years, you said you started at 16, worked at three academies for quite a substantial period of time. What was it that caught your eye regarding the coaching aspect of things? Yeah, I think I think I probably transitioned quite easily from being a, a fouled footballer. Um, I, I knew I could only get to a certain level as a footballer, but was always um, quite quite a vocal leader on the pitch and found it quite easy to help highlight people's strengths and 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 help them become aware of those strengths whilst whilst playing alongside them. Um, had a real passion for for teaching and learning. Um, had a real keen interest to to understand how different people learn and, and how to teach and sort of go in tandem with those learning styles and, and just sort of went into it, what made the transition quite easily. I wasn't, wasn't precious about holding on to my playing career. As soon as the, the opportunity to, to go in at 19 years old to work in the academy at Chelsea, which at the time was, was probably wrestling with Arsenal in London to be you know, the top academy in, in London and possibly the country, I couldn't turn it down. I think you make a great point there. And I think, you know, in understanding and maybe doing some self-reflection and understanding maybe what your skill sets are, where your strengths may lie in it and how that can naturally lend itself to the coaching things. Um, within that, though, you know, to get into, as you put it, one of the best academies in the country, um, certainly at the time and even more so now. Chelsea, age 19. What was that like, you know, stepping into that environment for the first time and, and obviously, since then, you've moved on to different clubs and seen a, a, probably a range of different environments and how things have worked in different ways. What were some of the biggest things you picked up from that time at Chelsea? Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing experience. First and foremost, um, I say this a lot, the players taught me a lot. You know, you're, you're seeing, I think what's really important for, for the listeners to understand is whoever you're seeing in the first team now, they're, pro, they're a product of... Of, of the people that were in the academy, not, not right now, but potentially sort of five, 10, 15 years ago. Um, Dermot Drummies, Michael Bills, Bob Osborne's, people like that, that were, you know, prolific developers of, of players. But going in there initially, I was shocked how good every single player was from, from player one to player 18 in every squad. Um, and the players really pushed one another. That was a real healthy environment. The coaching, the coaching there and the coaching staff were really ambitious and, you know, had a great desire to want to improve the players and be winners. And like I said, like I said earlier, we, we, were, we were coming into a period at that time where we were just about to overtake Arsenal. Arsenal were, 
were the were the big fish in the in in the pond at the time, producing players like Wilshire. And you know they had a, a, a prolific record of producing footballers, and we were starting to overtake Arsenal, and that was the beginning of that of that uh, that storyline, if you like, where we were neck and neck, and especially in the southeast London area we started to edge them on recruitment getting you know getting the best players and the best players choosing us over Arsenal and that was a real battle that we you know we felt we won at the time and I think you're seeing now you know players that are coming through into the first team at Chelsea Mason Mount, Reese James, Callum Hudson-Odoi but also players that are coming through in other first teams Michael Elise coming through at Reading and now being you know transferring to Crystal Palace, Declan Rice coming through at West Ham, Dan Kemp coming through at West Ham now playing at Playing at, uh, at Leighton Orient, but you know you can go through you can go through most teams in in the Championship and the Premier League, and there's there's a there's a player in there that was involved in the Chelsea Academy. So wonderful experience to be involved and, and be a small part of that. No, I think that's a very important point that you've made because you've had a lot of people. Well, there is a lot of people that that quite often you know would say that there's a lot of negative things to say around how Chelsea run their run their run their program in terms of their academy and whether they're actually producing enough players or whether they just stockpiling talent. Um but I think you make a great point because wherever you do go, I think it, it certainly from my perspective, I would say there's a lot of players that probably if you've been at Chelsea at some point, you're probably gonna land a career somewhere. Um because of the I guess the education you've had you've had through that time um, and the development you might not necessarily end up in the Chelsea first team and obviously you're seeing some great products now in terms of your the cheek Mason Mount Reese James and whatnot but I think that's a really key thing so I guess it, on on that note what you know what's it like maybe dealing with those players who are at those at a club like Chelsea as an example and realistically knowing that actually, as much as as much as time is spent in the academy, as much as the hard work you do there, there's a new manager coming in every other year, and they're just going to spend whatever the hell they want on the players that they want to get bring in, and ultimately that's just put another blocker on your in your pathway into that first team. You know how, how important is it for players to maybe just uh, have a have an understanding of that as a reality, um, and, and from a coaching perspective, you know maybe just share a bit of insight around what it's like maybe dealing with the players that are on that journey. And how you keep them motivated to think there actually is a genuine pathway for them? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and it's a question that we ask ourselves on a daily basis. Um, I think, I think at most clubs, you know, the lifespan of a manager is, is between between ten and eighteen months. So it's a it's a challenge that that, that goes on across the country, across Europe. Um, I think what what the, the key message that I have to really credit the hierarchy at Chelsea within the academy. Neil Bath with was that, you know, he could almost guarantee that they would be a professional football player. And, you know, he would never, never actually say that, but the track record that, that they have of making sure these players are pros, whether it be a pro at Notts County, Nottingham Forest, Reading, Cholton, Millwall, Fulham, they're a professional football player. That's something you can't say at a lot of clubs. How did we manage that? How did we manage those expectations every day? It was a really, you know, it was a really um, interesting time because sometimes you're looking and you're looking at a Loftus Cheek come through. And I remember when Ruben was coming through, he's one of the best I've ever seen. Um, the best, one of the best I've ever seen. And he, you know, he struggled to get in at times. I remember when Josh McEachern actually broke through Ancelotti, put him on in a cup game, I think it was against Newcastle. 
And it was just for us as a reward, as an academy, it was brilliant. And again, I wasn't ever involved in the top end of the academy at Chelsea. I wasn't involved in the youth team or the 23s like I was at West Ham. I was involved with the 7s, the 8s, the 9s, the 10s and the 11s. But seeing someone get through, just it, it breathed a, a breath of complete fresh air throughout all of the staff and the players at the club to know that it can happen. And you're talking about European champions. You know, how do you create a world-class footballer in, in an academy to go and play for the European champions? That's not easy. But one thing I have to say, um, and you have to give Frank Lampard a lot of credit. He was, you know, he was probably probably asked to do a really tough job when he went in, but he has definitely broke the door down with regards to those players coming through. And one thing I would say, which I think will follow suit, is what you're seeing now across the landscape of football is English footballers getting more of a chance, more of an opportunity. I think what will follow in the next sort of three, four, five years are coaches. I think English coaches are going to start to get more of an opportunity also. I, I agree with you. The only thing I would say on that is, and the question I put to you is, do you think that would necessarily be the case if Brexit hadn't been a thing? Yeah, good. and again, it's a good point. There's lots of permutations with a point system coming in now with the, you know, where you've got to play your football and whatnot. And I always think you're a product of your environment. So, you know, it, prob- probably not, but at certain clubs, what they're doing, I look at what Crystal Palace are doing at the moment and investing in young English footballers. Mark Gooey, who's one of my players, um, at Cray Wanderers before he went into Chelsea. Conor Gallagher, top, top player. He's in there on loan, but doing really well. I said about Michael earlier. But I'm seeing a lot of clubs that are, you know, that are giving these players a chance. Regardless of the circumstance, they've got to take it, haven't they? They've got to take it. And if they do take that opportunity, it will then set a trend. And then that trend will become a habit. And then that habit will be permanent. So I think, you know, with our young players now, now that we're putting more trust in them, I think that they've got to take advantage of the situation of Brexit, like you've just said, and take it with both hands. Definitely. So, you know, coming back to your journey, you you mentioned there that, you know, your time at Chelsea, you spent, how many years was there? Was it five? Five years. Five Five years, years, predominantly working in the foundation phase. Um, Where do we go from there? You know, you've obviously, you said you moved over to Millwall. What happened there? You know, what kind of role did you go into? And what were the ambitions behind that? Well, I was the I was the under nines coach at Chelsea, and I I I, uh, I looked at I looked at the landscape of the staff, and I wanted to coach 11, 11 aside football, and probably similar to some of the scenarios that we spoke about with the players, I asked myself, is there a pathway here for me? Now, Millwall offered me the under thirteens, um, and made a pretty big play for me to come in. You know, I, I you know managed to unlock some more some more of the budget to get me across. And I suppose, being honest with you, you know, I'm 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 a South East London boy. I'm a Millwall fan. Um, I grew up in the Lewisham Borough. I used to go down the den as a kid. I played for the club for a short period of time as a kid, um, and it was just one for me where I just couldn't turn it down. Eleven v eleven football, you know, good for my development. To then go into a club where you have to you have to polish the rough diamonds. You're not getting top players coming through the door in a conveyor belt. Local scouts are really having to work hard. Um, so that, that opportunity come up. And I had an opportunity to go into some other clubs as well, but Millwall for me was the one where I just thought this is probably the next stage of my development now where I can I can get my grounding on 11 v 11 football and then look to work towards my A licence. I think you make a great point there um, in that working with the rough diamonds, um, you're not going to get as many 
you know, ready-made players, if you like, or at least players who are getting close to them, just maybe need refining and polishing on, on the top of that um, to go through the system. But I guess just, just, just speaking on that then for a moment, do you feel, and this is just my opinion anyway, that maybe the, the, the coaching that needs to take place at that point there with the rough diamonds or the ones that aren't even established as diamonds yet needs to be at a much higher standard. And, and why I ask that question, because there's often this misconception that, oh, you know, because you work in an academy, because you work at, at a Chelsea or an Arsenal or a Category 1 academy, if you like, that you must be a great coach already. And I, I think it oft, often takes away the credit for some of the coaching that takes place before these players are even into those environments. Yeah, no, I, what I'll say is, um, and a lot of people that know me know I don't sit on the fence with, with certain subjects like this. Don't look at the badge on the, on the coach's shirt. Don't look at the badges on his certificates. Look at his work. Just look at his work. Look at, look at how the players turn up to the session. Are they infused? Are they running to the session? Is he coaching them before they touch a ball? And by that, I mean the introductory bits. How are you? How's your brother? I see your team lost the other day. I see your team won the other day. How's that left foot? You should working on that left foot. Look at things like that. Then look at how the players apply their intensity within the session. Look at the individual development going on. But yeah, I, I wouldn't take any notice of that. I've, I've seen some top, top coaches that haven't even attached themselves to academies. And I've seen really average coaches that are working in the best academies in the world. So I think, I think that to, to, we have to dispel, dispel that myth straight away. You've got to look at their body of work and players that they have produced that potentially come from, from a park and they've got them into the first team or they've, you know, they've got them a scholar where they wouldn't have probably been anywhere near it. So I think it's really important to, to make that point. Yeah. Did you, and just on that then, you know, just to go delve a little bit further on that, what would you say are the key things that you need to maybe think about as a coach when you're trying to prepare players to go into that environment? Because obviously every club is slightly different. Every academy looks for different things, but it, I think it can be agreed upon that there are some maybe consistent characteristics, traits or abilities needed to work, you know, to, I guess, function effectively in those environments. Yeah. All, all the best players I've seen and worked with and been close to, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't start a conversation when I'm speaking about them or with them about the technical or the tactical. I would say it's about the character, the personality, the psychological side. I've seen players that are bottom of the group at under 16 and they're the first one to make their debut. I've scraped a scholar, scraped a pro, but being in the building and understanding that they're nearly about to drown and getting in 25 minutes before everyone else and leaving 45 minutes after everybody else. Um, I would say that they're the fundamental things to look for. Of course, you've got to be good at football to be a footballer. That's, that's a given, but everyone in the building should have a certain skill set. But I think it is the desire to compete, the focus, the willingness to learn, the winning mentality, them non-negotiables are, are, for me, the most important things. And I'll reference one. There's uh, a boy now playing for Mills first team, Billy Mitchell. Um, and I really like Billy. Really great lad. You know, super person, great character. Um, it, it was, you know, he was, he was almost potentially going to miss out on getting a scholar at Millwall. And now, honestly, he's the best player on the pitch every week for the first team. Every single week, plays centre midfield. He's a real Millwall player. And going back to your question, I think it's important to understand the identity of what the club needs and what they're looking for. Millwall, it was about, you know, it was about those things. It was about being able to fight and being able to be box to box and robust. 
but you've also got to be able to have, you know, a good IQ on the pitch and be able to navigate around the geography of the pitch as well. So I think that's really important. But for me, I will always speak about that bit first, the character and the personality of that individual, because that drives them on. And I totally agree with that because I think I think you know you often get put in situations where and I'm sure you've come across them. And I, you know, I was, I was even speaking about this earlier today that you can always get those players who that they, they, they're great technically, they can deliver technically, but actually the, the, their their mindset, their approach to things is just not there. Their dedication isn't there, and the hard work isn't there. And you're right, you know, being a great on the ball and being a good footballer is just part of it, but that doesn't make you a professional. Um, and it certainly won't, it could make you a professional, but it won't give you a longevity in there. Um, I think more than anything is important to be said. So I guess in, in that time there now, so you've gone from being foundation phase coach at Chelsea, four or five years there, you've moved over to Millwall under 13s. What was the biggest thing that you saw in the difference in terms of that foundation to youth development phase changing? Because I think people often underestimate just how important that youth development phase stages as, as, as well as the foundation phase of course but I think the youth development stage for me is probably the biggest transitional period if anything because there's so many things going on during that time and to the point where clubs have now decided more often not to actually break up the youth development phase into two phases um, you know you've got your 12s and your 13s and your 14s and your 15s and 16s or however, wish to, however they wish to do it so what was the biggest things that you kind of picked up in that time there? Yeah it's a good question I think I think what I, what I really tried to do when I was working in the foundation phase, I tried to be world-class. I tried to be a world-class foundation phase coach. And by that, I tried to understand what the, what the player needed within that phase. It wasn't, I wasn't worried about giving them too much and looking at the first team. I was, are they technically in the elite? Are they physically robust? Just, just to pause you on that one for a second though, Harry. And I think that's a great point. What would you, you, what would you measure in that against though? Because I was quite often a lot of coaches in the foundation phase in particular. Um, I think it's probably not as common in in maybe academies, but especially outside, maybe within grassroots football in particular, they almost forget that you're working with children, young children, and then you start trying to develop strategies, practices, and you know a, a development that is based on senior football more predominantly probably even Premier League football, but actually the players that you're working with are nowhere near that yet. So what you know, what, what, where were you kind of maybe assessing what was the standard they needed to be at and whether that was actually the standard they should or could even reach at a certain point, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, it, it, makes, it makes complete sense. And to be completely honest with you, I wasn't measuring or comparing it to anything in particular. I was just striving to, to get to that point. So I had players like Jamal Musiala, who plays for Bayern Munich now. I had him in my under-9s group. Jamal was one of the best under-9s you've ever seen play the game, hands down. And what you're doing is you're looking, when you go onto European tours, you're playing against Anderlecht, and he's, he's driving through five and six players on his own. He's not passing the ball. He's taking it on his own. He's showing the twisting, turning, the agility with the ball. And he's doing it on a regular basis. And I was really, really fortunate that I had good mentors at Chelsea. Um, and we can speak about them as well. Who was, you know, they were very good with their advice in terms of, at the time, the best team in the world, when I was at Chelsea at the time of Barcelona, and they played one and two touch football. 
So to an uneducated coach, you'd get your under nines doing that. But that's the complete opposite of what they should be doing. So we would make sure that every player had their own ball for at least 30, at least 50% of the entire session. So that was really important. It was really important to be conscious of, of, of what they needed at that point. And that was to be technically elite 1v1. To be able to think 2v1 and to be able to play in those formats. Really keen to know more about that. So just, just maybe expand on that what, what, in that 1v1 piece. Because obviously, you know, people typically think, right, ball each, 30 minutes, ball mastery, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but ultimately, for, in my opinion, you can master the ball, but you haven't mastered the context. You need to master the context to, to, to even have any opportunity to utilize that ball mastery piece. So just 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 maybe talk us through that a little bit. Then you know that that one v one piece, that thinking in two v one, and and what was the last bit around three v No, it was just yeah, it's just play one v one, think two v one, and apply those two concepts within within the game. So I suppose to try and answer your question, uh, and you know that's why I smiled when you said like it's just ball mastery. That's what a lot of people will think, but. Like a typical, a typical session, I would have. So, on a rival activity, we'd play a game. But we'd play a game with four footballs on the pitch at the same time, so that they it was it was like street football. But the footballs might be different colours. Yellow ball, you can't pass it. You can't pass the yellow ball. Red ball, you can you can only play with your weaker foot. Just just creative things, but just to introduce the players to to the game. Then it was about then it was about the ball mastery because again, when you talk about the physical corner. For me, the physical and the technical are really close. People think when you're talking about the physical corner, you're talking about like your six foot two player and your four foot one. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your physical ability to be able to execute an outside hook, to be able to execute a cross turn with your weaker foot. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, and I totally agree with you because uh, you know I do, I do a lot. I do a lot. Of, I've done a lot of work over the years with players, especially when, when I'm working with them one to one and things like that. And for me, when people talk about technical detail, technical detail is not just solely based on the, on, in this case, performing a step over. We can all perform step overs, but actually, how you might perform it and how I might perform it have to be different based on our physical makeup, if you like. And I, is I'm assuming that's what you're referring to, is it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think on on that, then you know, it's, it's really important for play, for coaches and coaches and well, anyone listening to understand that when you are now looking at you know delivering on a, you know technical work with players, you don't deliver it with a with a one size fits all approach. Um, and I, I I actually had an experience about about six years ago, I think I was working with a group, it was, at the time I was working with a group of goalkeepers in, in particular. Um, and we had six different goalkeepers from four different nations. Um, and in my head, I said, oh, this is how it needs to be done. This is how it needs to be done. But then I had to then take a step back for a second because I set the task for them. But they were all getting, you know, similar similar or, or somewhat good success um, here or there. Was it, put it this way, they were all getting similar success and what I initially was focused on, well, actually, I assumed that A, B and C weren't getting as much success because they weren't doing it necessarily in the way that I wanted to see it done, if that makes sense, rather than actually looking at, right, let's look at it statistically, what's actually happening here? Are they getting success? And how different is that success? And then looking at, right, okay, so the success isn't an issue here. 
But what we have got a variable with is the difference in techniques applied. And then it started to get me questioning, right, why are these different techniques being applied? Now, it could be from cultural differences. It could be from coaching influences. It could be a, a combination of those both, but then it could also be then developed and based upon their physical makeup. So in some cases, an example, you might have a goalkeeper who starts higher than others because he's quicker than... Um, he's quick enough to get back to his line or, or or get away from his line if he needs to. Or you might have a shorter goalkeeper who decides he's going to drop off closer to the line as an example. Um, and obviously in the case that you're talking about, it's looking at that physical closely linked to the tactical. Now, it's quite interesting to hear you say that because I think a lot of coaches do often think technical is isolated um, and not really blended and connected to the physical and it, it, in the way that I like to be it's also blended and connected not only to physical but also to psychological because actually the psychological impact of you having to make a decision on the fact that maybe you're five foot seven as opposed to five foot ten to perform a certain technique is now going to impact you in a different way if that makes sense yeah completely and we had to and, and again like we was we was really creative with our planning so when you're talking about linking the physical with the technical and the tactical and again I'm not, just to, just to throw it out there again, I'm not a massive fan on the four-corner um, terminology. I think it's just, I just think it's everything. I think it's a ball. But what I would be quite, you know, try and be creative with was the length and the width of the pitch because you don't want to punish the runners. Boys that are gifted that can sprint quicker than the other lads, you don't want to restrict them. So they might need a pitch which is a little bit longer at times. But then the other the other players that maybe can't move as quickly and are not are not as robust out over the first five meters, they might need a smaller pitch to show what they can do. So we would be creative with the size and the shapes of the pitches. Sometimes you play in a circle. Sometimes you play a longer pitch. Sometimes you play a skinnier pitch. Sometimes you play in a triangle. Sometimes a hexagon with the corner cut off. Different different types of targets. Big goals for the ones that can strike it properly. Smaller goals for the ones that can punch it in. End zones for the ones that can run with the ball but can't strike it yet. Um, there's all different things. But going back to what I was originally saying was having been conscious of all of them things and tried to be a world-class foundation phase coach. When I got to the youth development phase, I looked at the players in two lights. I was really conscious of maybe what they hadn't got, what I would have tried to give to them had I been in that window. But then I was also conscious of their growth and maturation, which is unbelievable in that phase. You have, you have players that look nine and you have players that look 19. And you've got, to be, you've got to be really respectful of both. And again, you cannot just constantly hammer the lad that's physically maturated and go, oh, well, he's only doing that because he's big. He might always be big. He might always be big. So you mustn't hinder that player by saying, oh, don't, don't keep pinning the centre half because that, that wouldn't happen when you, when you evens out. It might never even out for that player. So if you have, I'm trying to think of a big physical, a big physical, Alan Shearer. If you said to Alan Shearer when he was 14, 15, don't pin and roll the centre back because it ain't really going to happen when you're a pro. He would have never been world class at it. So I was really conscious of, of kind of what ingredients they maybe didn't have and I needed to catch them up with. And then also conscious of their growth and maturation and, and try to try to manage that accordingly as well. No, and I think you make a great point there because, you know, I often, often give the example of, or, or the comparison of when you've got someone maybe who is a jack of all trades, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, um, but just understand that actually some people 
I mean, I'm sure you've come across it. You can, you, a player has been brought into your academy under 12. He's been brought in because he's a great finisher. He can finish off both feet. Um, but actually, his finishing hasn't actually developed three years on, and now you've released him because he, has, he hasn't developed his finishing. But in that three years, all you've done is spend time trying to balance all the other stuff up rather than looking at, right, this is the reason why he's been brought in. Yes, reality is, like you said, he might not be able to pin people in five or six years, but if we make him a specialist and super skilled at doing that, even if he's not, even if it does balance itself out, he should still be at a standard where he's going to be effective at it. And I think that's ultimately what you're saying. Is that fair? Yeah, 100%. I, I just couldn't name you a player in the top, the top two leagues of any country that is a seven out of 10 at everything mm. and not a nine out of 10 at one thing. So that's why I'm a real strength-based approach coach. So like you've just said, if you've got a lad that's elite level at finishing, well, let's just make him elite level at finishing at every level he plays at. Mm. Um, because, you know, otherwise you do start to produce clones. Yeah. And we went, we went through a small patch of that in this country of producing six, seven out of tens at everything and nine out of tens at nothing. And it's, it didn't really get us anywhere. And now you look at Foden's and Grealish's and Mason Mounts. You look at players like that and you go, well, do you know what? I can clearly tell you what their super strength is. 100%. So I think that's really important. 100%. So coming back to your journey then, foundation phase, Chelsea, youth development phase, Millwall, talk us through that. How many years were you there before you eventually moved on? And I was at Millwall for four years. I did, the, I did the 13s and then I went to the 15s and then I had a brief period just before I left Millwall. Um, I had a pre-season with the first team. I got on really well with a gaffer um, and I was the first academy member to do that, to go across because they wanted to, to try and, I suppose, break that wall down a little bit. Um, the 15s age group is a brilliant age group to work at um, and I loved it because you have the floodlit cup which is just a bit of a different feel, but you're, you're, you're trying to prepare the players. The under-15s age group is probably a little bit neglected in this country, to be honest, but you, as an under-16 coach, you don't have a lot of time to decide whether that player is going to be a scholar or not because they come back in August and realistically, you know, if you're doing the right thing by the kid, you've got to let them know by December. Mm. You've got the best opportunity to go and find somewhere else and or concentrate on their GCSEs. So as a 15s coach, your job is so important, so important. And I remember going over to Ajax and spoke to a couple of guys over there and I said, look, I work with the nines at Chelsea and now I'm 15s at Millwall. And he said, like he said to me, he said, I don't think you realise in England, like those two age groups are, are so key. Don't get me wrong, every age group is key. But yeah, so I did, I did the 12s and the 15s at Millwall and, I had a brilliant time at Millwall, like honestly, brilliant time. Players were so were so good to work with. And there was a couple of players that we, you know, not only have we got through to the first team, but we we managed to develop to a point where we sold them to, to a top, top Premier League club. And they played for, you know, one of the boys has played for Pep Guardiola at Man City, having come through at Millwall. So yeah, really proud of really proud of my time at the club. Brilliant. So you know, you spent four years there had a brief stint at the first team. What, what was that like? And obviously, I think I think that's really, really important. Uh, you know, uh, clubs do maybe try and, you know, you can't, you've got to be, you've got to be careful about who it is at the end of the day. But it's, I think it's very important for clubs to try and involve coaches in that pathway 
within you know the first team cell because you know there's that progression element, but also you 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 know you know the players that are coming through as well. So I think that that piece is key. But talk us through just you know briefly about what that time was like you know working alongside the first team manager and within the first team set by that point, and then how you how you transitioned over to West Ham. No, it was, it was unbelievable. I was you know I was brought in as as very much a guest and the manager at the time, Neil Harris, and 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 the assistant manager Dave Livermore, just honestly got me involved in so many so many interesting conversations. Neil was popping in and out of the room while we we were watching some footage of the opposition that we were going to play. I think it was Raul Vallecano. We were looking at them. Neil was popping in and out doing trying to do deals for new players. We were looking at different IDPs. I remember Livers was planning training around who was going to be there, who wasn't going to be there. Periodisation, which was something, we, you know, when you're working 12s, 13s, 14s, 15s, you're not, you're not having them conversations. You're not having those, that, that level of detail of, right, this practice doesn't quite suit the, the load that the players need today. It's game day minus two. We need to do X, Y and Z. So it was, it was brilliant. It, it wasn't a long period of time, but it was, I was just in there and I was listening to everything. I was listening to the recruitment. I was listening to the analysis, listening to the sports science. I was obviously listening to, to, to the conversations that Neil and Livers was having. And Neil would ask me to come in to say, hey, come in, come in, come, come in. You know, how do you think, what do you think of this? He'd have the tactics pulled out. And Neil Harris, as I, when I was growing up, Neil Harris was my favourite player for Millwall. He was like, he was my, he was my hero. So to be able to, to go and work with him for that for that period of time. And like I said, it was only a short period of time, but it was great. And then when I went back into the academy, it gave me another another little edge to go, oh, I want to, you know, I want to get this player who's a special talent. I think we can get into the first team. If the manager stays there, I really think we can do it. So no, it was brilliant, very eye-opening as well, because those guys work incredibly hard. They are 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. Definitely can take over your life once you catch that bug, man. Um, so you know, how did the West Ham move come along? Where you know, where did you go in when you first stepped into the academy there? And you know, what what would you say were the major differences from that to maybe a Millwall and what you were previously exposed to at Chelsea? Because obviously, Millwall's cat to a championship club and probably was championship around that time as well. Yeah. And you've gone from you know, Premier League cat one, championship cat two, back to Premier League cat one. Um, talk us through that and how maybe difference between even within the Cat One academies, how maybe different it was because you know the, let's let's be honest, you know Chelsea's a, a a different kettle of fish if in comparison to all the other clubs, despite all the great work that's going on across all the academies. Yeah, it was um, it was a strange one. So I, I actually wanted to I wanted to work I wanted to work higher again at Millwall, um, and I, well, you know I, I actually went in for a comp. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Conversations, I'd like, to, I'd like to potentially work with the 18s or 23s. I've done the 15s now for three seasons. And the head of coaching at the time was really honest. He said, H, look, at the minute, I can't move anyone because it's their job. Um, you know, he said, so at the minute, there's no, there's no openings. Southampton, Southampton got in touch and, and offered me something pretty much full-time, working with the age group above. Um, but I went on my advanced youth award with, with a guy from West Ham. And on the advanced youth award, Terry Wesley spoke. Terry Wesley spoke and... I was I was just having him straight away. I thought he was brilliant. He spoke he about spoke about one as well. Did, did he? Yeah. yeah he, was. he was he was brilliant and he spoke about three players. He probably did something similar on your one. He spoke about Declan Rice. He spoke about a lad that wasn't so successful at the club and spoke about the differences. And the guy that I went on the course with, he ended up ringing me that pre-season and he said, Hey, would you would you be available to come in for a chat? There's a couple of jobs that have come up. So I was almost like, honestly, on the way down to Southampton. So I thought I'll, I'll pop in. So I went in and I just presented for 15 minutes to Terry. And I'll never forget, he was walking up and down his office. He had a cricket ball in his hand, throwing his cricket ball up and down. He, Liam Manning was in there, who's the 23's coach, assistant coach manager. And Terry said, look, if you're as good on the grass as what that presentation is, I'll give you the youth team job tomorrow. So then I'm like, okay. He went, but I haven't got the youth team job available. So I was like, right, okay. So what was available was actually the full Eames job. So for me, that was going that was going to a younger age group, which for me at the time, I didn't feel like that was going to develop me. I wanted to, I wanted to work older. So I politely declined, got a call straight back, and they said, Well, what about if you did the full teams and you assisted Liam two days a week with the 23s? Now I'm interested. Now I'm interested. So Agreed to do that. Did the 14s for a season. Um, followed that group the very next season. Did the 15s with that group. And then when I did the 15s, the 15s trained with the 16s. So I ended up doing the 15s and the 16s with some really good guys. Gerard Prenderville, Colton Cole, Paul Konchesky. Yeah. Um, for one second. I've just, just sort of realised. Did you ever make it down to the journey to Southampton? Never. No, <laughs> no, I didn't. No, it was, it was, um, I was, I was honestly, I was going to, I was going to relocate. I was going to relocate and I was really serious about it. Um, but just, it's funny how it works. Just that, I could tell by when I said Terry's name, your face, but just that experience of listening to Terry, I wanted to work for him, you know? Yeah, no, I think, I think sometimes it is looking at the environment you're going into rather than the role you're going into. Um, I, and I can't, I can't, you know, emphasise enough for any coaches listening to this. And I'm sure you, 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 you probably agree that you can have a good role uh, on paper, but what you're going to get out of the environment is probably much more important. 
in terms of the other opportunities, the people around you, uh, the potentially the, the players that you might be working with, the resources you might have access to, and all these other things are probably probably just as important as that role itself. Um, so I think you know just just on that then. So you know you've gone in there, you just just talk a little bit about the difference. You know, what was it about Terry in particular that you, that you thought you? I'm having him straight away. What you know? Um, had you had that feeling about anyone else in the past? And uh, he's the best I've worked for. He's the best academy manager I worked for, hands down, hands down. Not it's not close. Um, thought Neil Bath was brilliant. Thought Scott Fitzgerald was brilliant. Terry was top. Terry was Terry was elite level. What what got me over the line was his his focus and determination to make players. He had an unbelievable drive to make pros. What does that look like? Because, you know, uh, academy manager or not, coaches will be saying all day long, yeah, I'm determined to get these players over the line. I want, the, I want, to, I want to help develop professional footballers. I want to help develop people as a, as, as a whole. But what does that look like to the point where you're thinking, no, this guy really is determined? I think he had loads of things. He had loads of things. He had an individual development plan for every single player in the building. He had, you, was a, you had a head coach, you had an assistant coach, and then you had a player mentor for right. every player in the club. I was a player mentor for players that wasn't in my age group. I had an under 11, I had an under 23, I had an under 18. And it was your job to meet with those players during the week and do extra sessions, analysis, meetings, and log it and send it to him. He had TMR reports, which was technical match reports, where... Every single TMR report, Terry would read it on a Monday morning. And he wasn't interested in what the score was. He was not interested whatsoever. He was interested. Did we have the best player on the pitch? Did the game style suit our best players on the pitch? Was we pushing our players in terms of their, their development? Was we stretching them? Did we have a focus and a willingness for them to learn? And he was, he was so consistent with that. It wasn't like he presented that to me. He didn't even tell me about it. It was something that I see, and like I say, I say it's a lot. An individual development plan, it's not something you put on your fridge. It's not something you put on your bedroom wall. It's something you get up every single day and you live it. You live it every day. Mm. And the best players I work with, they're, they're now playing at the top, top level because they've got an unbelievable consistency in their drive and their focus every day. And Terry had that, and he inspired people like me, his foot soldiers, to go out on the grass and to develop and push. And he used to say, the player at the bottom of your group at the moment, do not, dis do not, do not put them to one side. They could be your top player in two years' time. Push everybody. And it was, it was honestly, it was an elite environment. Some top coaches at West Ham as well. Paul Heffer worked, has worked there. Paul Heffer played with Bobby Moore. Um, Paul Heffer is like a coach development guy. And Paul would just come and watch a coach and he would say so many simple things. H, he's not checking his shoulder. H, he's not, he's not using his left foot when he opens out on the back foot. H, he passes it too much. And he, he, was, he was brilliant. You had Liam Manning, who was the 23s coach. Steve Potts, Kev Keane was in there as well. Like I say, Gerard, Coley, Conch. It was, it, was a, it was a real, it was a brilliant cocktail of great coaches at the time. Just on that, then you know, there's something that you mentioned a couple times in the conversation already. That, and you, you spoke about it in, in particular with Chelsea, and especially now with West Ham. And it was never necessarily about a group of players; it was about the individuals. 
So I would assume it wouldn't be very different at Chelsea and things. Yeah, we want to win things. We do want to win things. But what's more important is how many of these players we get through the system. Um, and I think it's very important for maybe coaches to remember that, listen, yeah, they might win the league at under 12s or under 13s or whatever age group. 10 years' time, no one's going to give up anything about that. All they're going to think thinking is, right, but how many players did you turn into professional footballers and how many of them, A, went on to actually have had, had a long a long-term career in the game as a result of the work that took place in your environment. So maybe just for, for a brief moment, just speak to how important it is and, and maybe some of the things that you as an individual maybe need to think about or needed to think about in terms of keeping that as the focus yeah. and not getting uh, you know, t- 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 too dragged away with anything else. I've gone into, I think, four interviews in my life to be an academy coach. Chelsea, Millwall, Southampton, West Ham. Not one of them interviews did they ask me what, what, what my win percentage was. Not one of them. They wanted to know who I'd worked with, how I'd developed them, and what I'd done to push them and, and what I would do to, to develop their players. It's really difficult, really difficult for coaches to get their head round. It's almost like two different sports. And that's, re- that's the best way I can say it. You are a developer. You're a developer. So at Chelsea, it was really hard to stand on our soapbox and say that because we won every week. Every coach won every week. The coaches didn't have to be there on a Sunday for the team to win. Honestly, it didn't have to turn up. Players were, were so good. But I can say that at Millwall. I can say that Millwall, I can, I can say that, I can say I'll produce this player and produce that player and help produce that player. I can say that West Ham. Um, it, it's, it's, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. You've got to put that before, before everything else. Winning mentality is, is, comes from within, from within the players. So you want them to win. You don't want them to turn up, develop and lose. You want them to turn up, you want to develop them, you want to develop them into winners. You want them to develop that fight and that bite and that ability to cope and that ability to to get past every boundary they're going to come up against. So I'm not saying for, for, you know, you should not want to win every game you play. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's not, that's not what you judged on as a, as a developer. You're, you're just not. And, you know, I think that's a great point. So just on that then, uh, as a developer, what would you say are the key fundamentals in terms of your philosophy and approach to that? I would I would look at I would look at the person first, the player second, and the team third. That's 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 the the best way I can sum that up simplistically. Person, player, team. Can I get on the Can I get on the right wavelength and understand the person? Understand where they've come from, what makes them tick, what makes them drive. Look at them as a player. Understand what their strengths are. How am I gonna How am I gonna turn you into a pro? How can I make you? a pro, and then look at the team and how the team facilitates the first two. So just on that then, you know, I think, I think that's a great way to kind of uh, break it down and I guess prioritise if you like. I always, I always, you know, I live by the idea that, the, you know, the, the, the better the questions that you ask yourself or ask you, you know, with, whether that be on a personal note or within life in general, the better your answers will, you, you, you'll, you'll get them. So, what kind of questions are you asking yourself now when you're looking at that player and thinking, right, you've said it there, but how can I help? How can I help you? 
if you you know have to break that down on a deeper level, what what are the key things that you're really maybe focusing on within that? Yeah, no, that's that's a brilliant question. That's a brilliant question. So, what are they good at? Why are they good at it? What do they need? What do they need is a big one. What do they need might mean ten different things. What do they need when people are listening to that? They might think, oh, that do they need to hide their weaknesses? Yeah, probably. But what else do they? Do they need sparring partners? How does how does how do you sharpen this player if he's a top finisher? If he's a top finisher, he needs a good goalkeeper to stretch him. If he's a top finisher, he needs a great 1v1 defender so that he can shift and hit rather than just being a great finisher that can find corners unopposed. If he's a top finisher, does he need a certain type of type of service? So what does he need is, is massive. And then the when is massive as well. When do you play him up? When do you stretch him by playing him up? When do you maybe stretch them by not playing them up and playing them down? Not playing them down in age group, playing them down in ability. Michael Owen was so good at finishing because he played county football and he played district football and he scored a thousand goals as a kid, running clean through and slotting it into the goal. So making sure that you credit them with a library of experiences. So by the time they get to that point, they're ready to go. I think that's a great point. Um, what do they need? And I think that's what often, you know, I, I guess it ties into this a little bit in the fact that even when I've designed my practices, as an example, for any, any of the sessions I've delivered, uh, in the last few years, I've been working as a coach developer, um, supporting loads of coaches. And the one key message I always get them to think about is forget what your topic is to start with. Because before you can even get to that, you need to make sure the, the flip side of that is taking place. So in this case, if you're, you know, you, you, you use the idea of sparring partners, which I think is a great way to look at it. If you want a player to become better at 1v1 finishing or 1v1 dribbling, you need to get the 1v1 defending element to a certain standard first so that that player can be appropriately challenged. Otherwise, it's just going to be, as you put, it might be the equivalent of Michael Owen playing at county football rather than playing against you know, other academies or players of a similar standard. Um, and then it just kind of then speaks to right, how varied are you, are you then making your practices within sessions? How are, are you given that, you know, that library of experiences that you talked about there? Um, now you talk, you talk, you know, you talk there about that, that person element, what do they need to talk, talk about that, that the, the next part. So you said the person team, or was it person, Players, person, player, team. Yeah, person, player, team. So, talk us about that. Then, you know, I, I, person, maybe just things that are not just specific to being on the field, and I presume you players just more on-field elements. Maybe just be a bit, give us a bit of clarity on what you mean by that. Yeah, I had to be. I had to be, especially at Chelsea. I had to be an expert on knowing when you come on the Astro turf. Do you have an older brother? Do you have a dog? Dog's the best 1v1 defender in the world for a six-year-old, right? So I had to know these things. I had to know who's bringing you. Is it mum? Is it dad? Do I know dad? Is dad a Chelsea fan? I had to know these things. Who do you support? Who's your favourite player? Is your favourite player left-footed and you're right-footed? I need, to, I need to know all of these things. I need to know everything. Is, you know, is your older brother better than you? Is he not as good as you, but he challenges you physically? You need to know everything. When a player comes onto your pitch, if they had a good day at school, if they had a bad day at school, if they come as a release, all of these things, 
put that into the player itself, they're the things that we've just spoken about. Does that person's personality match their personality on the pitch? That's an interesting question. Sometimes it doesn't have to. Sometimes it doesn't have to. Sometimes you can see like a really quiet, shy player turns into a lion on the pitch. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes as a wide player, confident wide player, that you want to be able to express themselves consistently 1v1, you need to make sure that they're feeling confident as a person before you're asking them to, to, to constantly risk the ball, as we say, which I hate mm. that terminology in itself, but take, you know, take those risks, if you like. And then in terms of the team, when you look at the team, how does the team, this is when you're looking at youth development, how does the team service the player? How mm. does it service the player? How are we getting the ball to that player? When are we getting the ball to that player? In which scenarios are we doing it? If, he, if, if we want to play to, our, you know, to our, our wide player, we want to get him 1v1, are we playing him consistently on the right as a right winger so he's 1v1 with the left back? Or are you going to do what I did with Callum hudson Doy and play him as a fullback so he's got to be two players or three players? So he's having to rehearse his strength more times than, 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 all, you know, than, than just the once. Do you play him on the other side of the pitch so he's now that his angles have changed. Do you play him centrally so he's got to have 360 vision? So how does the team service the player's development? These are all things that you have to consistently think about. I th- and I think there's some great methods that you've given in. I think that even just essentially what you're doing is manipulating your practices and your and even the games that you play to get more get more returns and outcomes and repetitions of whatever the action is that you're trying to get up. So I guess you know, you've, you've mentioned a few names throughout this conversation. Um, you talk about you know being a developer in uh, first, and obviously the coaching bit is, is is part of that. But I'm really interested about you now. Who 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 would you say are some of the people that have helped develop you? So maybe you know person of influence, maybe from your time at Chelsea, your time at Millwall, your time at West Ham, and it might be more than one person in each of these environments. What would maybe the biggest lessons you've picked up from them, and how how would you say that's impacted you now? Yeah, I mean. One of my closest mates is Michael Bill, who's Gerard's uh, assistant at, at Aston Villa. Mike was, was with me at Chelsea. Uh, massive influence on me. He was my coach when I, was, when I was a young player. I used to play futsal. So before futsal was a thing, we played futsal in, um, on my estate. We played it with a smaller ball, um, Brazilian soccer schools, it was called it was football disallowed. Small weighted ball. He, he just opened up my my mind to how many surfaces of your foot, you've got eight different surfaces of one foot, how you use those different surfaces. Um, he was a big influence. Bob Osborne at Chelsea as well was like, really hard to describe Bob, but almost like a nutty professor. Just, uh, you know, he's in John Terry's book, he's in Peter Crouch's book, he's in Jody Morris loves him. Bob's been there for forever. Uh, so those two at Chelsea were massive. I'd say at Millwall, Steve Salis, who's now really successful Really successful author, works at, works at AFC Wimbledon. Top, top guy, Steve. Steve was really good, bouncing ideas off of Steve. Steve, in terms of understanding, teaching and learning methodologies, he's world-class, absolutely world-class. While I was at Millwall, the FAYCDs were, were in fashion from England. They would come in and watch. And we had Ben Bartlett, who come in. And Ben's now head of coaching at Fulham. Ben, again, another, another person I've got. Lots of admiration for and respect for. Love Ben. Ben was great for me in terms of helping me, helping me understand what type of coach I wanted to be. Actually, um, 
And then when I went to West Ham, Liam Manning, absolutely. Liam's now manager at MK Dons, first team gaffer there. Um, and we're still friends now. I went to see Liam last week, Terry Wesley and Paul Heffer. Paul Heffer at West Ham, like I say, Paul Heffer's like really, really, really old school, but so new school, it's frightening. Um, so I've been really lucky to, to come in contact with, with some, some great, great people. I think if you make again within that, it's a great point. You, you mentioned there about Ben Bartlett in him getting you to think about what type of coach you wanted to be. Because um, I don't think enough coaches, especially early on in their journey, they have they really even bothered to think about that. Um, you know, and I often say that I think if you don't know what type of coach you're going to be, how have you how are you, how are you going to develop yourself? And yes, you're going to pick up things along the way naturally by osmosis and whatnot. However. If there's no direction or clarity on what you want to try and focus on and get and, and develop on, then you're always going to find a challenge. So, you know, just to kind of move on from that a little bit, then you know, let's look at you now. You, you know, you, you've had those influences on your journey, um, and you've picked up some good things from them. And it's, you know, I'm sure that you've had plenty of good experiences off the back of that. What would you say are some of the maybe negative experiences you've had? And what would you say are some of the things that maybe frustrate you about coaching as a whole? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, I think when I was younger and I was coming through, I was really excitable and I wanted to do everything too soon. And the advice that was being given to me was like, H, relax, it'll come. You know, I wanted to be England manager when I was 19. I would, you know, I was ready to take on the world. Um, and But what I... What I what I found from those experiences is was you know it's, it's shaped me how I am today. So I'm, I'm I'm grateful that I'm grateful that sometimes I was a little bit like a ball in a china shop and I wanted to lead every practice and I wanted to you know because I re I just cared I, I just really cared and I think what you you know what you do when you're going in, into elite environments at 19, 20, 21, working with top top professionals you know sometimes you can you can come up short a little bit and I think everyone's guilty of that. But all of my experiences, I've just what I would say is whether I've been right or wrong in situations, I've always been honest and upfront and been heart on sleeve um, and said what I think, said my opinion. Sometimes it gets you there, sometimes it don't. So that's something to you know. Sometimes you've got to read the room. Sometimes that's been one thing. H, read the room a bit better next time. But you know, I'm I'm, I'm a really I'm a really honest person. So that's why people over the years. They trust you. They trust your opinion. That's why people come to you and they ask you advice because they know what they're going to get is truly like authentic. Hundred percent. So you know, you're talking about that. You know, sometimes it gets you places. Sometimes it doesn't. You're now, you know, manager of Hartford Athletic in the in the second division over in the states. How have you ended up in that role? And can you maybe just share a bit of insight around what that role looks like um, in terms of not just player development, potentially coach development, if any, if at all, any. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it come about, I was um, was driving back from uh, a day release session at West Ham. Not a session, yeah? No, 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 no. Um, and a uh, phone went off and it was an American number. And I'd, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm one of those guys, I normally button those numbers off straight away. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, I don't really want people wasting the time and trying to sell me things. And it was um, it was a technical technical director at the time, technical advisor to Hartford Athletic, to the owner, um, manager, uh, Raddy Jaidi, who was 23 gaffer at Southampton prior to going over there. Um, he finished his season. Uh, they didn't renew with him. And um, 
Paul had read a book that Steve Salis wrote, which I'm in, and cut a long story short, reached out to Steve and said, is he as good as what you say he is? And Steve gave me, you know, very kind enough to give me a, a brilliant reference. Paul then run Colton Cole that played for him. And Coley was assisting me at the time at West Ham. And Coley also gave me a brilliant reference. And then he rung Mickey Bill, who at the time was at Rangers, um, and just said, you know, he's, what, what do you think of H? And me and Mick are like best mates. So he's obviously gone for me as well. Went through the process, presented to, to him and the owner on my methodology on, on, on how my teams play. Um, because, you know, we, we play with a certain style. It's, it's, it's themed. Risky, but it's exciting. It developed players. Um, then presented on on a game the previous season on on a breakdown, a tactical breakdown of that, and and got the job. So that that's how I landed it. Uh, youngest coach in the league. In terms of sort of my development, I feel like I've had five years of development in one season. It's been it's been amazing in terms of you know the stuff you're exposed to. You're flying to games. You've got 22, 22 men to keep happy. People coming in your office because they're not playing. You've got to be really honest with them. I'd like to think that you know all of my players would say that I'm a very honest manager. Um, you've got to see if your methodology actually works. Can you win games? Can you win games when you're losing? Can you win games when you're winning? That's another one. Can you can you maintain a lead and see a game out? But brilliant experience so far. And um, you know I've, I've managed 32 games of professional football at 32 years old. So I'm really proud of that achievement. No, no, that's an excellent achievement as well. So congratulations on that. But there's a really key thing that you have mentioned in there is that you've gone from being developer to now, what would you call it? I would call it a developer. I've, I've not changed. Well, this, I, this, I, was, this is, I was a youth developer. I was yeah. a youth developer. I've just taken the word youth off the front. Right. And I, I mean, we've, we've, we've had players come in from an open trial system and... They've gone on to play international football this season, and we've sold we've sold we've sold a player who come in on an open trial system, and I really wanted to stay true to my reputation and myself, and and you know put that put that at the forefront. When there's three points on the line, don't get me wrong, you've got to win the three points. You've got to take the three points. You've got to try and win the game, but you've got to do it your way. You've got to do it within the parameters of your philosophy, and you know. When there's two minutes to go, if the ball's on the byline at the other end, by all means, kick it in their box. Absolutely. Let's have a lottery. There's two minutes left. But when there's 88 minutes left, no, no, no. We're going to give it to our centre-half. He's going to step into the pitch. We're going to show right and left, and we're going to try and play through the thirds, and we're going to be exciting. We're going to be a team that's fun to play in and fun to watch. And I think that's really important that you mentioned that, because I think... It's about staying true to yourself eventually, and I think it, the, the proof will, the proof will be in the pudding as to whether you know what you what you're doing has credibility or not. So I guess just on that, you know, you, you talked about a range of different experiences working through youth football, um, and, I, and the reason why I asked that question is because it, it is still developing. It is still developing, whether they are youth or whether they're senior players. So I guess on that, then through all those experiences, working in youth football as a youth developer, and now just a player developer as a whole. What would you say one of the some of the or what would you say has been your biggest challenge of your journey um, to date? There might be there might be a couple of different ones, and how have you gone about dealing with it? And it might not even be something that you that you've overcome yet. You know, it, it was definitely this season. This season was the most most rewarding and the most challenging at the same time. Um, went over to to Hartford, didn't take any staff with me, couldn't take any staff. 
I went over just solely so I had to meet new staff and manage expectations within there. Um, no family could come over because of what's going on in the world at the moment. So nine months away from the wife, parents, family, tough. Um, first 12 games. Uh, so to put it into context, we've got the second lowest budget in the country. First 12 games, we're second in the league. We've just beaten the, the, we've just beaten the league champions 1-0 at their place. Um, after that 12-game period, we went on a period where we lost five on the spin. Now, if you lose five on the spin as any first-team coach, it's going one way. You're down the road. Um, I've got an unbelievable owner who, is, who trusts me, uh, and it was a really tough time. And how you recover after losing a game of football as a first-team coach is one of the most important things. Going final whistle Saturday night, disappointment Sunday, reflecting, to come back in on Monday, you've got to be busy. You've got to be busy. You've got to be smiling. You've got to have a bit of a spring in your step. You've got to be front foot. How you recover after a defeat is massive. And I've said this a million times, but unless you're coaching Chelsea, Man City, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Man United, you're probably going to lose... 12 to 15 games a year. You've got to be an expert at recovering after a defeat. You've got to learn how to do it. You can't get too low. And at the same time, you can't get too high when you win. So what are your tips for that? How do, how do you recover from that? Uh, my, my tips, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I didn't have anything for you up until probably the last two or three games. But it was, it was, it was learn from it, park it, and then look forwards rather than looking backwards. So once you've picked the bones out of it, you've then got to look forwards because three points has gone, but there's another three points available on Tuesday or on Saturday. So rather than dwelling on the past, and that sounds very cliche, but rather than dwelling on the past, you've got to look forwards and be front foot. And you've got to trust your players. Sometimes you have to shake it up, but sometimes better than shaking it up and changing the team, sticking with the team. Yeah. sometimes that breeds more confidence than changing the team saying fellas listen I could easily change this but I trust you I trust all of you I trust you I trust you implicitly I trust you so much that's why you're in my team and I'm not going to change it boys that are on the bench I'm really sorry I'm not going to change it if it continues how it is I'm going to give you your chance but in a minute I trust you lot and I think you can pull out a performance and that's more powerful than going right you're out you're not good enough and something no, no. I totally agree with that. I think it just shows that not just your trust in them, but the trust in the work that you've been doing. Um, and I think I think that I think that goes a long way. So I guess, you know, as we start to kind of wind down, Evan, you talked about there, you know, some of the influence you've had, some of the experiences you've had over the years, and even just now, you know, what, you, what you've identified as one of the biggest challenges and most rewarding times of your journey so far. Thirty-two, you've achieved a hell of a lot in that short space of time. Uh, I say short space of time, although you've been coaching for 16 years, but at a young age, shall I say, if you could go back and speak to yourself, and I've got, I've got, I think I've got a good idea of what you might say to this, but go back and speak to yourself age 16, knowing what you know now, what is a piece of advice or what kind of conversation would you have with yourself back then? I would, I would say, I'd say don't rush. Yes. Don't rush. You're, you're going to get there. I'll say trust, trust the experienced voices, trust the grey hair, trust the grey hair, trust the experienced voices around you that are telling you that you're good enough. Because I went through a, a few patches in my career where I was applying for my A licence at 22 and I was getting annoyed I weren't getting on it, but I was 22. I was probably not getting on it because the FA thought he needs a little bit more growth. 
And then that was the right thing. Just on that though, I think you make a great point there, but I think also is, is knowing that sometimes you haven't got on it because actually, not because you're not, you're, you're not ready or you're not good enough, but actually there is a whole host of other people that are, are ready and are good enough Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. I think that's the bit people often maybe gloss over and can kind of forget about it and maybe take it a little bit personally at times. Sorry to cut you there, but I think that's a, re- a really good point, though. Oh, no, I think you're spot on. I think you're spot on. And 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 typically of a 22-year-old, I'm not thinking in that mindset there. I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking, why am I not? Why have they not? Have they not seen my work? Have they not seen me on the grass? Have they not seen me do? So my advice to myself would be, don't rush. Trust the grey hair. Listen to the people around you that, that, have, that have lived it and got the T-shirt and Someone said to me once before, like, never look sideways to compare, only look for inspiration. So surround yourself with elite people. Because if you're looking to compare, it means they're on the same level as you. Whereas yeah. what you want to be doing is surround yourself with people that are like above your level so that you've got to strive to get there. 100%. I totally agree with that one. So then, if you had 60 seconds now, then that's a conversation you'd have with yourself. What will be some of the advice that you maybe give to listeners in terms of their own journeys and maybe a golden nugget, if you like, for them to maybe take board and apply for themselves? I'd say the first thing is, is ask yourself where you want to be and, and, and then try and live that for a couple of days. If you want to be a first team manager, you need to know what that feels like because there's a lot of pressure involved in that. If you want to be a world-class under nines coach, you need to know who is a world-class under nines coach and what it looks like. So go to Ajax or go to, go to La Masia at Barcelona or go to a Chelsea or go to an Arsenal or go to a City or go to a Crew Alexandra of someone, you know, academies that have produced loads of players. Do you want to be a youth team coach? I think, I think the under-18 is the best job in academy football. Brilliant job. Do you want to be a youth team coach? What type of youth team coach do you want to be? Do you want to be someone that plays good football? Do you want to be someone that produces players? Uh, Warren Joyce was a youth team coach at Man United. Worst style of player I've ever seen. Produced more footballers than I've had at dinners. So what, what type of coach do you want to be? But look at, the, look at the end, look at sort of your target and, and then sort of try and work out what it looks like and how you get there. Brilliant. And just, you know, just again, looking to wrap up now then. 32, achieved a lot. And I, and I, and I genuinely mean it when I say, I hope you're going to achieve a lot more than you have. And I'm, and I'm sure I'm talking to a future England manager um, right now as well. So hopefully that dream is still alive for you, Harry. Um, but, you know, if we now fast forward, let's say 30, 40 years or whenever it does finally come to a point where you decide your career is going to come to an end, what's the legacy that you want to leave behind? I suppose I would love to just continue the, the feeling that I've got at the minute when, when I turn the TV on and I see a debut or I see one of the lads scoring a goal or, you know, it made me really proud when I see when I see Deck play for England. I thought that was brilliant. And I didn't have a massive influence on Deck's career at all. Didn't coach him a lot, but just sort of, he, he probably influenced my career a lot. Um, but, you know, Sam Adozi made his debut for Pep against Leicester in the Community Shield this year. And Sam, one that I'm really close to, managed him for a few years at Millwall. That, that's the thing that I love the most. Um, I want, to, I want to continue to manage. I want to come back to England and manage. And, and for me, I would, I, would just, I would like to just sort of sit back and be content. I'm, I'm impossible to, 
I'm the type of person, it's impossible for me to normally usually be content with things, but if I can kick back when I'm sort of 60, 65 and be content with my achievements, you know, produce good players, play good football, excited fans, won some leagues, that would be something that I would be really, pr- you know, really proud of. And again, just to reiterate, I genuinely wish you all the best with that and I definitely think you you will go on to achieve some great things and um, hopefully we'll have an exclusive um, when you take over the Millwall position as well as the England manager's position. But just on that, you know, it has been a, a fascinating conversation. I've been really insightful, uh, you know, and I thank you for all the open and honest, um, well, everything that you've shared, really, because, you know, you've, you've been through through quite a, quite a magnificent journey working out for all those clubs, and I think there's been some fantastic experiences within that. But just, you know, if there was any listeners or viewers um, tuning into this that maybe wanted to find out a little bit more about what we've discussed um, or have any further questions, is there some way they can potentially get in touch with you to do that? Yeah, so we got in touch, I think, through through LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm not on Twitter um, for, for my own for my own mental well-being. Um, I do have an Instagram account, um, which is Harry Watling Coach. Um, where I'll, I'll just put some put some bits up, but I say this all the time, and I and I, and I genuinely mean it. Um, I was always looking for people to give advice to me when I was a young coach, younger coach, and you know I want to be able to be that, you know, potentially be that that sounding ball for people as well. So I will try and answer as many you know inbox messages and text messages as, as I possibly can. So if anyone wants to reach out, have a listen to this, and ask some advice or or you know or have a chat and I'm, I'm i'm open awesome well thank you again for your time harry i really appreciate it thank you cheers thank you well there you have it guys another episode of the coaches network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete talent and personal development together to just one platform and you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of you can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.